0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are spiritually prepared, ready to focus and study on God's word. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening to study your word, that your word is truth, and it is your word that informs us how to think, and it is through your word that we are uh, sanctified as we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit in light of your word. Father, we pray that you would just open up our eyes so that we can understand the truths that are here and that we might be able to clearly see how we apply these things into our own lives, recognizing that so often in arrogance we Think that these things apply to someone else or some other time and we are not always willing to see how they apply in our own lives and our own thinking. Help us to be encouraged and strengthened by the examples of those we study in the Old Testament because the issues that they faced and the challenges they faced in their own spiritual life are not any different from ours. We have some assets that they did not have, but the principle remains the same that we have to choose to implement that which you have provided for us. So, Father, encourage us with what we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll start in Hebrews 11. Hebrews, just to make sure we understand what we're doing here, because the 11th chapter is a long chapter, 40 verses, with many different examples, and it's easy sometimes to kind of get lost in the high weeds here and forget the main teaching point, the main doctrine, which is to challenge the readers to stick with the Word of God even though they may not see immediate changes and an immediate value in their own life. They're going through suffering, adversity, persecution, and sometimes when we go through difficult times, we don't see why. We don't understand why. We don't understand how God is using this to mature us, to teach us, and to train us, to rely upon Uh, him and his word and to rely upon and to learn and train ourselves just to constantly look to him and constantly rely upon him. The focal point in this chapter is can really be found not as much in the word faith, which is the word that's repeated again and again and again and again, but it is faith in a promise. Faith in the Bible always has a clear object. It is the word of God, the promise of God. If we were are to go back and remind ourselves of the very opening paragraph in Hebrews 1. We read, God, at various times and in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by means of the prophets. So that takes us back to the very progress of Revelation. So this is the, one of the main ideas that we see all the way through uh, this uh, book of Hebrews, is the progress of Revelation, how God increasingly revealed himself, his plans and his purposes to man, and in each generation, generation after generation, it was the responsibility of each believer at that particular time to respond in faith to the revelation that was given to them. Gosh, how dispensational. That's of the very essence of dispensational theology is that in progressive revelation, God continuously builds on and develops the understanding, or develops certain themes, and in each generation you respond to the revelation that is given to you. And sometimes this gets this shifts uh, according to dispensation. So in verse one of Hebrews one, God spoke in the past. But in these last days, He has spoken, indicating a completed action there. In these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things. Now, that brings in the idea of inheritance. So you have the idea of God speaking, God's inheritance, and these are major themes within the development of Hebrews. So in this last section, as we have gone through a uh, warning section at the end of chapter 10, there is an emphasis on uh, it sort of builds to a uh, crescendo here at the end of chapter uh, chapter ten, so that in verse twenty three there is the exhortation, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So we see this this connection, the promise fu- is future fulfillment. Hope is a future certain expectation. So our faith is in the certainty of the promise, and that is our hope, our confident expectation. So he writes, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And chapter 11 is going to give us example after example after example of these great Old Testament uh, heroes who didn't waver at key points. Now, they wavered at other times. They were human and had sin natures just like the rest of us. And sometimes we look at their lives, if we're really honest, and they are pretty messed up. A lot worse than some of us are, or so we like to think. But they didn't waver at key points. They were re- really, truly understood God was in control, God's promise was certain, and they focused on that at the important key turning points in their lives. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without waiving, for he who promised is faithful. So the promise always takes us back to the character of God that he What he reveals, what he promises, he does not go back on. Again, in Hebrews 10.36, we have another uh, reference to promise. For you who have need of endurance, that means hanging in there. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. It's, again, that future expectation. It is not fulfilled now. It's something we have to... I'll look forward to it's the carrot that's way out there in front of us. It's not an immediate uh positive uh feedback or immediate gratification. It we have to look to an uh, uh, an uncertain undetermined future. It's a certain promise but the timing is far off in the future. And then this gets focused even more in these examples in Hebrews uh, in Hebrews 11, especially in relation to the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, uh, the statement with Abraham is, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise. That focuses on the land, this is important for tonight's lesson, key element, the land of promise. He never owned it, but it is the land God promised him, so he focuses on that and lived there as in a foreign country, Dwelling in tents as Isaac and Jacob did, the heirs with him of the same promise. And then we come to verse eleven, I mean verse thirteen. Uh, These all died in faith, not having received the promise. So even though they didn't receive it in their lifetime, nevertheless they were faithful in their walk with the Lord not to waver, knowing that eventually that promise would be. Fulfilled. That is an argument the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, used uh, for resurrection, that God promised and he will fulfill it, and that means that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must come back from the dead in order for God to be true. So verse 13 says, "...these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth." And then that brings us down to the verse, uh, the verse we're in, which is, if I can find my arrow here, there we go, uh, verse 20, uh, twenty-one. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So we look at the prophecy in relationship to the sons, the other sons that he had. And now uh, tonight what I want to do is wrap up with the last uh, part of this, which deals with uh, the thing that we didn't look at last time, which is Benjamin. The last part deals with Benjamin. So turn with me now back to Genesis chapter 49, and we'll look at Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil so this is a prophecy that relates to the tribe of Benjamin as a in terms of their their violence and their uh, activities in terms of war, and that is uh, seen as a characteristic of Benjamin during the horrible time of the period of the judges and there's a time in there when the uh, tribe of Benjamin is almost completely uh completely wiped out and this happens in a time after uh one of the most uh, bizarre perverted episodes that occurs during the period of the uh, of the judges in judges chapter 19 it is a time, again, there is an emphasis on the reality, the spiritual reality of the time. Verse 1 of that chapter came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. Now, that's sort of a double entendre because there's it's, there's no king in terms of the monarch, but God was supposed to be the king, and the nation as a whole had rejected God's authority, had rejected him as the king and once you take God and and uh, Scripture and His revelation out of the picture, then you no longer have a, a solid reference point for morals, for truth, for absolutes. And so everything becomes relative. And all cultures that have divorced themselves from God as an absolute reference point end up in various kinds of uh, moral relativism and spiritual relativism, and that was just as true in the ancient world at the time of the period of the Judges as it is today. And there are many parallels between the time of the Judges and the time today. And these episodes that are given in sort of a, an appendix, epilogue, if you will, to the Book of Judges, in uh, chapter 18, dealing with the tribe of Dan and Micah's and the idolatry there with the setting up of the uh, uh, false uh, priesthood under uh, this character Micah, and that involves the migration of the tribe of Dan up into the north to uh, taking over, capturing the Canaanite city of Laish and establishing the city of Dan, and later that becomes an alternate wor- worship site under the, um, under the idolatry and the paganism of Jeroboam I. Well the second episode involves this this levite who takes uh, has a concubine and he uh takes his concubine from Bethlehem in Judah and she is uh, unfaithful to him and leaves him and uh, departs from him for a period of four months and then he goes after her and uh trying to track her down and we're told in um, in verse 3 that she brought him uh, into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he's glad to meet him. Verse 4, uh, now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him. He stayed with him for three days, and they ate and drank and had a huge, uh, huge party. And after this, uh, they got ready to leave, but the father goes on to tell him, no, just keep staying, just keep eating and drinking, let's keep the party going. And so they did for a little while, and uh, finally the young man uh, leaves. Um, eventually, on the next morning, down in verse verse 8, again, there's the encouragement to stay and keep going. And um, uh, so the father-in-law keeps encouraging him to stay. And so finally he leaves, but he leaves late. And when he finally departs, in verse 10, it's late at night, and he goes to... Um, A town opposite uh, Jerusalem, and as he nears there, he's trying to find a place to stay, and so he won't he won't go there because he's afraid of the Jebusites, and so he goes to a city of Israel called Gibeah down in verse 12, and Gibeah is in the tribe of Benjamin. Now the tribal allotment for Benjamin was just north of Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem was almost on the border the northern border of the tribal boundary of Judah and Benjamin. That's how, why the tribes really come to merge together uh, a little bit later on. And so they go into Gibeah because it is a town of Benjamin, and he thinks that uh, they're going to be uh, safe there. And so they meet this old man, and he takes him into the house and there's a lot of parallels with the situation that occurred in in Sodom with uh, Lot and his daughters and so this um, Levi takes his concubine uh into the house and in verse 22 we're told that as the as night fell there were certain uh perverts perverted men in the city surrounded the house start beating on the door and they're demanding that um, they bring the man out so that they can have uh homosexual relations with him, they're going to have a gang rape of this man, basically, and this shows the degradation and the perversion that's occurred within Israel. See the irony of this is is that the Levite is afraid for his safety and the safety of his concubine to go to this Canaanite city uh, uh, because the Jebusites are there near. Uh, what is Jerusalem, and it's still dominated and controlled by the Jebusites, so they're so they're the evil, wicked, perverse Canaanites, and so he said we're going to be safer in a city of uh, uh, that's dominated by by israelites, so we're going to go there, but by this stage, Israel has become so perverted because of their moral relativism and their uh, rejection of the truth. And that that what the writer of Hebrews is showing is that now they have become no different from the Canaanites, in fact they 're worse than the Canaanites, so the people of God have now become so infected by more relativism that they don 't not, not only do they not act and look any different from the from the pagans they 're out paganizing the pagans, as it were, they are in even worse shape. And so the man who is who owns the house goes out. He tries. It's very similar to the to the episode in uh, Genesis uh, chapter nineteen. In fact, there's a lot of vocabulary that's the same. Trem- a lot of parallel here, which I covered when we did this study in, in Judges. And so he pleads with them and begs with them not to do this. And eventually, what they do is they take the Levite's concubine and just as it were throw her to the wolves. And it shows just a complete lack of concern for women. That's another big theme in Judges is that the more pagan the culture became, the less value they put on the women, and the more the women were abused and maltreated. And this comes right after the episode with Solomon. Uh, Solomon is covered, and then you have the episode with the, um, the Danites, and the, uh, the tribe of Dan and, and Micah, uh, and then this episode, and with, with, uh, with Samson, he's just a womanizer. He mistreats all the women in his life. There's nothing val- women are not valued. And this is what happens in a pagan, in a pagan culture, is it completely wipes out, uh, any redemptive, uh, value that's occurred in the culture towards the role of men and women and you will see the same kind of thing that's happened in our culture. I think today you'll hear people say, well, we just hear more about abuse than we did before. I don't think that's true. You didn't have it before. You had uh, isolated incidents, and in some areas maybe there might have been a little more rather than less because act, we have sin natures, but back in the early Years of this nation up through the nineteenth at least the midpoint of the nineteenth century early nineteenth century, you did not have the kind of abuse of women and children that you do starting in the middle or early to middle of the nineteenth century when you began to shift more and more into a secular culture and the more we 've shifted to a secular culture and rejected what the Bible says about the role of men and women and treating men and women as as both equally created in the image of God, the more this breaks down. And that's uh, an example here. And so they just take this uh, guy's virgin daughter and the concubine and they just throw them out there to these perverts to uh, rape them as they will. And so by the next morning, uh, the uh, Levite gets up. And he, uh, goes out and discovers that, that his concubine has collapsed and died on the front door of the house. And so when they open the door, they discover her. And of course, they're, uh, somewhat incensed about this. And what the Levite does is he takes her and he cuts up her body into 12 pieces to send it around to the, uh, the, the tribes. In order to get them incensed and upset about what these uh, people in Gibeah have done to her and to uh, get them incited about this uh, horrible act that has taken place in Israel. And so they, they, they do. He achieves his result. The rest of the tribes are all up in arms against the Benjamites and they raise up an army and they come down to uh, to Benjamin, call upon the Benjamites to do something about these people uh, in Gibeah, and they they don't, and they view it as a battle between the Benjamites who uh, sort of uh, close ranks, uh, developing a civil war between Benjamin versus the rest of the nation. And we discover that Benjamin has quite a uh, a military skill. And so there's the call for them to deliver up the uh, these guilty men, but they won't do it. So they gathered all the men to, together, verse 14, for battle. And verse 15, we read, From their cities at that time the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. So that tells us there's 26,700 uh, men in this army that Benjamin puts together. Now that's an important number. Uh, to remember because of what what happens after that. Uh, besides um, Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000. So you have 400,000 against 26,700, so they're a little outnumbered. But the Benjamites are quite skillful, and uh, they are uh, quite destructive in the battle. So they go out to the first stage of the battle, which is described in verses 20 and 21, and in that first stage of the battle, the Benjamites are victorious and they kill 22,000 Israelites. And the people go home, the rest of the people go home and they uh, recover their wounded and they reorganize and they come before the Lord, verse 23, and they weep before the Lord. So it shows that they are still going to the Lord for aid. Uh, they come before the Lord in verse 23 and ask again, shall I go for battle Against the children of, of my brother Benjamin, the Lord says, "Go up again." So they go up again. The second time, the second time they get beat again. Now, and when you get beaten, when the odds are this much in your favor, the tendency is just to quit. Well, why why should I keep doing this? So they they chose that they have some uh, in the rest of Israel. There there's is some level of endurance in the midst of the battle, and again they are they're defeated and Eight, they lose 18,000. So now they've lost uh, 40,000. They've lost 10% of their army going against these uh, Benjamites who are, you know, quite successful. And this it shows their ravenous wolves. This is a fulfillment or indica- indication of this trend in the tribe of Benjamin. So now all the rest of the children of Israel go to the house of God. They go to the tabernacle. They weep before the Lord. They fast. They pray. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, and they come before the Lord and before the Ark of the Covenant and before the High Priest uh, Phinehas the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, and they inquire of God. And again He says, "Go up tomorrow, and I will give them into your hand." And so this time they set an ambush for the men of Gibeah and the ambush is successful and they draw out the benjamites on the third day and they uh hit them again and at first the benjamites uh, are successful they begin to strike down and kill some of the people as at other times and then there is apparently they they fade back in this ambush the trap uh the trap is sprung and when they spring the trap verse 33 They kill, down in verse 35, 25,100 Benjamites. Now, how many did they have to start with? They had 26,700. And so in this battle, they start off, they kill uh, 25,100. So that only leaves 1,600. They just about wipe out all of the men in the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin almost disappears uh at this point, and then it goes on to describe more that takes place and When we come down, they give another number um, a little further down and uh but it's just a breakdown of of the individual you get the larger number earlier when it says eighteen thousand men of Benjamin that fell in verse forty four that's part of the uh larger number that was that was given earlier. And again, you get a summary of the total number in verse 46. All who fell on Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Ramon. And they stayed there at the Rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin, struck them down from the edge of the sword. From every city, men and beasts, all who were found, they also set fire to all the cities that were there." And then, verse twenty and chapter twenty-one, there is a um, recovery that's provided through uh, wives that are provided for the the surviving men in Benjamin, so that the uh, the tr- the tribe can uh, replenish itself, which it does eventually. And that's the tribe from which Saul came. It's the tribe from which uh, Saul of Tarsus came, the apostle Paul, and so it does uh become re- reconstituted so that is the fulfillment of what happens to the to the tribe of Benjamin and they had this this reputation of being very very strong uh powerful valiant uh warriors and that's one example when it was turned to something that was that was quite t- terrible and and quite dark now that covers the 12 tribes that we've had related to, to, uh, the sons, the twelve, the prophecies there. Now, specifically, when we look at verse 21 of Hebrews 11, Jacob is focusing on two other sons, the sons of Joseph, that he adopts directly as his heirs. This is the double portion blessing that will go to Joseph and so his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, or Minnesha, will become part of uh the inheritance, the tribal inheritance to Israel. There's no tribe of Joseph in the land. You have the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, but you do not have a tribe of Joseph. Sometimes, for example, in the list of Revelation 7, the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, you do have uh, Joseph mentioned. Uh, in that list, there's there's a lot of di- when you read the twelve tribe list through a lot of different areas of scripture, there are differences, and each case has to be looked at on its own as to why there is uh, one group listed one way or one group's listed another way. So let's look, turn back one chapter from chapter fifty to chapter uh, forty-nine. Or 48, rather, from chapter, we were looking at 49. Let's turn back to chapter 48. Chapter 48. Basically, this is divided into two sections. The first 12 verses focus on the adoption of Joseph's two sons as the full heirs in line with the other sons, heirs of Jacob and so this shows why each becomes the head of his own tribe in the house of Israel and then in verses 13 to 20 uh the patriarch is going to uh J- Jacob is going to give a blessing to the sons which follows the principle of the elder serving the younger so there's a reversal that takes place there and in uh verses 21 to 22 in the conclusion there's a state confident uh a prophetic statement there That they will return to the land and they will prosper in the land. So in verse uh, 1, we read, Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick, and he will, and he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Joseph, Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. This is a very formal meeting because this is where. The, the blessing will be passed on and in that culture this is a, this would be as formal as when we are going to have a signing of the will or reading of the will where the heirs are designated and uh, you'd have a lawyer present and all of these things. We've lost a lot of the sense of formality in this culture that we once had. It was, it's interesting every now and then when you're watching something on the history channel or the discovery channel dealing with the uh, 20th century and you get into the early part of the 20th century and you see people like uh, President Taft or President Roosevelt or you see other diplomats and you'll see them wearing a, uh, the men wearing a top hat and tails and striped pants and this was protocol for dress for anyone who was involved in any kind of diplomacy or any kind of meeting at a high level of state. What shocks you is to see President John Kennedy dressed that way in 1960. Things shifted during that administration. And by the time you get to uh, Lyndon Johnson, you, you don't see diplomats dressing in that traditional formal garb. And so you see a shift that takes place in terms of how Americans treat uh, formality and authority from the mid sixties to the beginning of the 21st century. And by the time you get to the 21st century, you see, uh, presidents and world leaders and ambassadors getting together. And often they just may have on a sport coat and an open collar shirt, or they may not even have on a sport coat at all. They may have on a, a golf shirt or something else. Very informal. And that's a huge, Huge cultural earthquake shift that takes place in forty years, less than forty years, and that is a reflection of an underlying world view and view of society and culture and authority that has taken place that shifts everything uh, it 's not that that is in and of itself wrong, but it shows that there is something. Incredible has taken place in the way people look at authority and look at relationships uh, during that time we've become i think it leads also leads itself to a lot of mental sloppiness myself and we we can also see that I had an interesting comment made to me today by another pastor who pastors a <coughs> uh, who's one of the few teaching pastors in this city, I won't mention his name. you probably guess it, but he was telling me about a son of a an individual in his church who I know pretty, pretty well and have known for uh, known of and known uh, somewhat for probably twenty years now. And this uh, woman's son has come back to his church. Had left for several years, and this son had was quite Calvinistic in his views. And so he did not agree with the views of this pastor. And so the, the son had decided to leave the church some years ago and for the last uh, two or three years has been looking for another church to call his home church. And he's gone from this church to that church, looked at Baptist churches and independent Presbyterian churches and Bible churches and all kinds of different churches all over the, the city of Houston. And last week he he came back and he said, you know, even though there are things in this area that I disagree with, and trust me, there, there are a certain number of people who are so committed to certain uh, aspects of a Calvinistic theology that if you're not genuflecting towards Geneva at least once a week, which is where Calvin uh, lived and had his ministry, then they won't darken the door of your church. But this young man said, everything else, and he told this pastor, he said, trust me, I have been to 80 or 100 different churches around Houston in the last uh, two or three years. And he said, trust me, you are a dinosaur. No one else in this city is teaching the Bible verse by verse in terms of a historical grammatical Interpretation. No one. He said there is such a vast difference between what you are doing and everybody else is doing that even though I don't agree with you in, in a number of these areas, uh, dealing with that, those areas of disagreement is nothing compared to the uh, rank uh, paganism and entertainment that dominates all of the other churches in, in the city of, of Houston. And so uh you know we we just live in a culture today that has become very sloppy in its theological thinking as well as in the way it conducts church. I remember some years ago my friend Tommy Ice was still in, living in the Dallas area and uh, he went to a church that his mother attended. It was a Baptist church. And I'm not saying this was necessarily the right idea. But the pastor always just on Sunday morning never wore a coat and tie. He just had on a sports shirt and a pair of slacks, very informal. And uh, Tommy said, I just sit on the front row with my three-piece suit and tie on and glare at him. We feel that way sometimes. Because this shift has taken place, and just as a sloppiness in our approach to authority and formality has occurred, a sloppiness has occurred in the way we think, and people don't want to think in a rigorous, disciplined, theological manner anymore. And that is just part of the relativism of our culture. So sometimes it's a little... uh, difficult for us to see and understand the formality of these kinds of occasions and to understand how uh, how rigid the cultural standards were and the the norms and standards were in this kind of a setting where the blessing is going to be passed on from uh Jacob to his grandsons and this is going to be preceded by this very formal adoption uh, ceremony, and so the 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 circumstance begins, and Jacob says in uh, verse three, he he begins by rehearsing what God has done in the past. See, this is all about God. It's not about Jacob, and it's not about Joseph. It is ultimately all about God and God's plans and purposes for those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who are the intended heirs to the promise. There's that word I started off with. It, the focal point here is on the promise. So Jacob begins by saying, God Almighty, appear to me at Luz, and that is the old Canaanite name for the city of Bethel that was renamed Bethel by which means the house of God, renamed that by Jacob himself, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Now there's one other thing that I, I want you to note here as we kind of read through the passage is the shift in the name for Jacob. Notice in verse 2 it says, Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Israel was the name that God gave him when he returned to the land, when he wrestled with the angel at Peniel. And, uh, Israel emphasizes his spiritual role within the flow, his new position, his new, uh, his new, actually his new spiritual life after his time out of the land. So there's that, that important shift Back and forth you'll see this terminology that takes place there. So the, whenever Israel is used, it's usually focusing on his role within the national flow and the flow of the Abrahamic promise. So in verse 3, then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Now this refers back to the dream that Jacob had. In, that's recorded in Genesis chapter 28, uh, verse 11 and following. At that particular time, uh, Jacob had been living with his father Isaac and Rebekah and his twin brother Esau down in Beersheba, which is down in the lower part of the map there, and I have it have it circled. And this is when he had gone through his deception of his father in order to get both the blessing and the birthright that was due the elder brother Esau. And he was trying to manipulate the blessing, get it his own way rather than God's timing. And God had already emphasized before his birth the principle that the elder Esau would serve the younger Jacob, and therefore Jacob was the one who stood in the path of blessing. But Jacob was trying to do it his way instead of God's way and got everything uh, muddied up. And so after his uh, act of deception with uh, with Esau, where he had dressed up as Esau and brought in the uh, meal and fed it to uh, Jacob to get the blessing, I mean to Isaac, to get the blessing from Isaac. When Esau found out, uh, Esau was breathing threats of murder, and so Jacob needed to get out of town, and so his mother was uh, told him he needed to leave and go live up in Aram, which is even further north than what we see at the top of the map there, uh, just to go live with the relatives and get away from Esau. And so he headed north, and his first place he stopped was at Bethel, which is the middle circle I have there. Bethel and, and Ai. Now the reason I have Shechem also circled there is when Abraham came into the land, the first place that Abraham stopped was at Shechem, and he stopped there at Shechem. At uh, and the text in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6 says he stopped at the oak of Moreh. Now the oak of Mora indicates that this was a known location and it was a particular oak tree or grove of oak trees that was owned by this individual Mora that was probably a pagan worship site. That was typical among the Canaanites to have a grove of trees and in this grove of trees they would set up some altars and this is where they would uh, carry out their false worship. And so Abraham stopped there and he we're told in the text that he uh, built an altar there at um, at Shechem and this was where God and in response to God's reiteration of the land promise that God was giving that land to Abraham and so in response Abraham built an altar and he worshiped God there making a public proclamation of his God Yahweh Over against and in the face of the Canaanite worship there. This would be like going down to the neighborhood mosque and building a, putting up a cross in front of the mosque and preaching a sermon and preaching the gospel. That was, it was in your face. And he was making a public proclamation of God. And he does this again in the next verse. He goes after the time in Chechem. He moved further south to the area between Bethel and Ai and built an altar there where the text says he called on the name of the Lord. And calling on the name of the Lord is an idiom used in a number of places and as Al Ross notes in a number of different places in his commentaries, that this act indicates a public proclamation of God. And so he is entering the land. He's not just sort of slinking through. He's not very, he's not quiet in his process. He's building altars in these places to his God. He's marking out his territory in terms of the promise that God has given him. So the focal point here in, uh, when we talk about the cities of Bethel and Shechem is to be reminded of their ultimate importance as a place where uh, Abraham had first proclaimed uh, the good news about uh, his God, and so it is always a reminder of the land promise. So, in Genesis twenty-eight thirteen, when Isaac, I mean when Jacob was spending the night there. Uh, the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and verse 13, the Lord stood above it. That is the ladder, the stairway that, that he saw in his dream between heaven and earth and the angels ascending and descending. And the Lord says to Jacob, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father. And the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. See, this is the same promise that he had originally stated to Abraham in Genesis twelve seven. It's about the land. It is about the promise. Now, Abraham didn't see it. Isaac didn't see it. Jacob didn't see it. But the promise is reiterated from generation to generation. So we have the land promise. And then verse 14, also your descendants, that is your seed, shall be as the dust of the earth you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east to the north and the south and in you and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed so we have the reiteration of the three basic elements of the abrahamic covenant land seed and blessing all reiterated reconfirmed to jacob at at bethel on his way out of the land that's important because Eventually, he's going to come back to the land, and the promise is going to be reiterated both at Peniel on his way back in and then uh, at Bethel. In Genesis 35.10, God renames him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God, and and, uh, God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. Now, where have you heard that before? That is the original mandate God gave to man, and back in Genesis 26 and tw- 1, 26, and 27, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." It's reiterated in Genesis chapter nine, and those first nine uh, verses are the of Genesis nine are the, are the Noahic covenant. And around verse two and th- two or three, I think is where we have the reiteration of the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That hasn't stopped. God didn't come along somewhere in the book of Acts or in Revelation and say, okay, stop, there's going to be a problem with overpopulation. That never occurred. Overpopulation fear mongers are operating on pure human viewpoint in their understanding of history. This is not, population control is not a biblically consistent concept. So God said, I'm a God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land, once again, there's that land promise which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your de- descendants after you, I give this land. Now, that's the, what Isaac is, I mean, Jacob is referring to in when he begins to, uh, Remind Joseph of the history. And this is what he states in verse 4. He says, This is when God said to me, Behold, I will make you, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So that is a reiteration of what had occurred in Genesis chapter uh, 35. It's interesting, the same terminology gets repeated in the first chapter of Exodus when we're told that after their 400 years or so of being in, uh, in in Egypt, the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. They multiplied and ex- grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So this is brought about while they are in uh, in the land of Goshen in Egypt. So in verse 5, he, uh, Jacob continues to, uh, to speak, and he says to, uh, says to Joseph, Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. See, this is his adoption procedure, the formal announcement. These two sons are now my sons. As Reuben and Simeon, Reuben and Shimeon, Uh, They should be mine. So now they are elevated to the same legal status as their uncles. Verse 6, he says, Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So these two sons, who historically are the sons of Joseph, now uh, will establish the inheritance of their father as equal tribes in the nation, so that Joseph himself doesn't have a tribe, but his inheritance is, is dual, and that um, uh, elder son, he's viewed as the firstborn son with the uh, double blessing. Now, the rationale that he gives for this is related to the premature death of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob. And in verse 7, he says, But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. Now, Ephrath is the ancient name of Bethlehem. Uh, So she died on the way to Bethlehem, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. And the picture that I have up there is a picture taken in the 1880s that has, uh, recently this wonderful collection was made available of, uh, about two or three thousand pi- pictures taken by a number of different people who were in, uh, Israel in, from the 1880s through the, uh, 1940s. And it's really interesting to look at these pictures as they were taken before Things became all urban and modernized. When we were in Bethlehem a few years ago, we couldn't even see the tomb of Rachel because there's a huge wall now built around it. And just at, at, at that wall, there is a really trashy uh, gas station, and it's in the what is now an, an Arab part of, of uh, Bethlehem, which is just as Uh, trashy looking as it can possibly be. There's been a huge shift in the population in Bethlehem in the last uh, five or six years from uh, a town that was 90% uh, Christian Arab to a town that is now 90% Muslim Arab. And, uh, so as consequently the, uh, neighborhood has deteriorated quite a bit, but you can't even see this anymore. And so this is a wonderful shot taken in the, uh, 1880s and you have a camel caravan, uh, going in front. And I can imagine that this is pretty much how it looked, um, 500 years ago or a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago and this is the tomb of Rachel uh right outside Bethlehem today it's right in the almost in the heart of the city of Bethlehem and so the rationale that uh that uh, Jacob gives is that Rachel died prematurely she could have had more sons and because she did not have more sons i am going to adopt your two sons as my own and give make them equal heirs in the inheritance with uh, with your brothers and so he looks at then at the two sons and he calls for their identification in verse 8 who are these and Joseph then responds these are my sons who God has given me in this place and Jacob says bring them close I will uh, bless them and in this it begins the uh, next section which is the blessing itself and he shows Joseph brings them before uh, Jacob, who notice starting here, uh, starting in verse 48 is referred to as Israel, indicating the national significance of what he is, uh, doing. And verse 10 and 11 sort of bring, is a transition stage here. The eyes of Israel were dim with age and he couldn't see. Then Joseph brought them near and he kissed them. That is, uh, Jacob kissed them, embraced them, and said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has shown me your offspring, referring back to the fact that he had thought at one time Joseph was dead. So Joseph brought them uh, from beside his niece, they're young, bowed down with his face to the earth. In verse 13, Joseph took them, Ephraim with his right hand, so he's standing here like this, Ephraim would be with his right hand, my right hand here, and uh, is pushing Ephraim with his right hand towards Jacob's left hand. So this would be Jacob facing, if you were facing me, this would be his left side, this would be his right side. So he's pushing Ephraim towards uh, Jacob's left hand and uh, Manasseh towards Israel's right hand so that Manasseh would be the one... Um, then, uh, to, to get the blessing brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head. So, so even though, uh, Joseph is pushing, pushing Manasseh to be on Jacob's right hand side to receive the, uh, firstborn blessing, J- Jacob is going to cross his hands so that his right hand, uh, goes onto Ephraim's head who's the younger, and his left hand goes on Manasseh's head, and Manasseh is the firstborn. What this means is that the uh, the younger is going to receive the firstborn blessing. In verse 15, Jacob blessed Joseph and said, God, before my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. Notice he recognizes God's the source of everything that he's had. The angel who has redeemed me, purchased me from all evil, indicating the angel of the Lord who delivered him, and the angel of the Lord is his redeemer. He blesses the young men, the Yeladim, He says, let my name be named among them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Hey, dad, you got it wrong. We've got to get the prime blessing to the older older son. And so he tries to remove it and switch things back. And in verse 18, we read, um Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, this is the first warrant put your right hand on his head. But his father refused in verse 19 and says, I know, my son, I know uh, he also shall become a people and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother Ephraim and the northern kingdoms often referred to as Ephraim uh, is uh, he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations, so this prophecy is the prophecy related to the blessing that God would give to Ephraim as the uh, rec- receiver of the firstborn blessing uh, of Joseph. So that covers verse uh, 21, and then in Hebrews 11:22 we have a closely connected verse in terms of the historical situation. By faith Joseph when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. Now, the point that I want you to remember from this is a focal point of, of Genesis 48 is the blessing of the, and the promise of the land. But Jacob didn't see it, and, and uh, Ephraim and Manasseh individually didn't see it, but the tribes did later on when they entered the land and took it during the conquest, but not the full extent of it. Then in verse 22 of Hebrews 11, the focus again is going to be on the land promise, this promise, promise, promise. That's that's what keeps getting emphasized here is that we have to have a long-distance look at the promise. We're not going to see it fulfilled tomorrow in our lives or the next day. We don't necessarily have the kind of response from God that we think we ought to have in terms of some sort of immediate gratification. We have to wait on the Lord in terms of trusting in Him. And so Hebrews 11.22 is a reference to the last two verses in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 50 uh, begins with the death of Jacob and his burial in the land and then there after uh, they all go up to the to uh, to bury him, they return back to Egypt. and starting in verse fifteen, we see the uh, reiteration by uh, Joseph of the forgiveness of his brothers for what they did. And then we come to the death of Joseph, beginning in verse twenty two and we read uh, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt. He and his father's household, and Joseph lived hundred and ten years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir and the son of Manasseh were also brought up on Joseph's knees. Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, verse twenty-four, "I am dying, but God will surely visit you." And bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The promise again, it is the land. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here, and then the last verse, verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. But when they leave Egypt, they took his coffin with them, and then when they came to the land, they did bury him uh, in the land, and uh, that is where he rested because the focal point is on the promise. So that is what he, the writer of Hebrews is reminding his readers of, is that these men lived their entire lives on the basis of a promise they never saw fulfilled. They went through hardship. They went through adversity. They went through all kinds of uh, personal challenges to their own faith and trust in, in the Lord and their growth, and they didn't see the fulfillment of the promise. But each one was given more revelation. And each one was faithful to the revelation that was given to them. And so the application is going to be that just as they did, we must also constantly walk uh, by means of faith. And the ultimate example that he's headed to is, of course, the example of Jesus who uh, is faithful, goes to the cross where he died on the cross for our sins that we might uh, have eternal life. He runs with endurance the race before him, and we too are to run with endurance the race set before us, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Next time we get into something that uh, we haven't studied a lot of, and that is dealing with Moses and uh, the exodus. Uh, event from Egypt. This is in verses 23 through 29. And so, and then we get into the conquest, some in verse, verses 30 and following. So we haven't looked at that. We'll only hit these as they, in summary, as they relate to, uh, what is covered here in, uh, in uh, Hebrews 11. I'm not going to give a detailed study of the book of Exodus. We just hit the high points as it relates to this in terms of the challenge to press on. So let's bow our heads now and close in prayer. Father, thank you for these examples. They encourage us because so often we think we have it rough and that we're facing uh, terrible challenges in our lives. And uh, few of us have been thrown in jail or been uh, hauled before uh, courts and unjustly accused. Many of us, few of us have been um, threatened with uh, murder by our families or sold into slavery as Joseph was or many of the other things that happened with uh, the patriarchs of Israel, and yet they focused on the promise, they focused on what you were, on on you and your character, and that sustained them during these times, and it was through that that they grew and matured and became a tremendous testimony both to the angels and to us of your faithfulness. Father, encourage us with uh, these examples and that we might respond as the writer of Hebrews would have us by uh, maintaining our consistency and endurance in our own Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.